Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're speaking to you today from the Clean Room at the Carl A. Rotwang Institute for Machine-Human Research here on the beautiful Hubel campus. Today we're talking about a new reconstruction of Egyptian mummy faces. Using forensic DNA phenotyping, it is now possible to determine the color of mummy's hair, eye, and skin. The results are fascinating and have interesting implications for understanding the demographic history of ancient Egypt. But how do these results compare with the political and cultural history of Egypt? How do multicultural societies with monocultural politics manage issues that seem so tricky to us? And if we're talking mummification, why did ancient Egyptians mummify any animals they could get their hands on? Does anyone love their pets that much? Okay, so I have a lightning round question. Um, And this... This actually woke me up in the middle of the night as I as I contemplated it myself. Wow. That's how that's how it is. Okay. So if you could choose any artist in history to paint your portrait, who would it be? Not your favorite artist, but the artist who would be best capable of presenting you. <laughs> That's a really interesting question. That is a great, yeah. And I, yeah, that is a really interesting question. It, it may not actually be answerable um, on, on one foot. We may have to come back to this in season six <laughs> with an answer. I think it's answerable, but I'm not going to go first. Oh my God. That there it's, you know, I, I, yeah. Uh, I just wrote down a whole series of names. Uh-huh. And so um, Van Gogh, Rembrandt, Diane Arbus, <laughs> Praxiteles, and Praxiteles would say, look at this guy, I need a bigger piece of marble. <laughs> uh, and then in the middle of the night, all it came to me, Chuck Close, the mm-hmm. photomontagist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I don't have a preference, but these are the kinds of names, as opposed to, all right, we're going to Sears, <laughs> we're getting her we're getting we're getting your portrait taken for third grade huh okay that's interesting and you see where i'm going with all this given the topic i, I you see where you're going. yes 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 yeah i mean it's a, it's a good direction it's uh, a good direction yeah uh, okay so since you've kind of widened this from just you know choosing one um but one does immediately. Okay. Who's the first name that pops into your head? Sergeant. If I were going to be have a portrait done, I would want Sergeant to do it. John Sanders Sergeant. Yes. 
who's also a favorite artist of mine, but I also think that that would be a good, a good person to, to do my, my portrait. Um, Rembrandt is interesting. I'm not sure I would have thought of Rembrandt if you hadn't said that yourself, but he has all these, you know, um, portraits of Jews. So why not? Right. And, yeah. And then maybe in terms of more contemporary, maybe Annie Leibovitz. Annie Leibovitz. <laughs> yeah. Annie, right. But definitely not Rubens. oh i can't top that that's brilliant we're not going to touch that one that's that's fantastic (laughs) thank you thank you that is really good um i i might go with uh with jack kirby the famous uh mad magazine artist nice nice um i i uh, yeah I don't know how exactly to pronounce it, Modigliani. Modigliani, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, because he, his, his faces are always interesting. Yeah. Right. And then, of course, you could just go, go with someone who doesn't do portraits at all, like Jackson Pollock. Mm-hmm. And just be represented by splashes of color. <laughs> well, I, you know, I was thinking, how would I look, how would any of us look being kind of deconstructed by Picasso. Well, so I was going to get into that. I was going to think of a cubist Picasso, but um, you know, Picasso is, is a problematic artist these days. Well, who isn't? Come on. Well, right. They all are, but yeah. he's particularly problematic being a really kind of a, you know, <laughs> a, a serial, uh, I don't want to. Yeah, right. Well, he was, you know, he was a man of his, <laughs> he was a man of his time and station. So um, I didn't want to really bring up Picasso. Well, but, but since you did, you wouldn't mind being, you know, having an eye here and an ear there. And- oh, I would love it. I love the Cubist. I love the whole Cubist, uh, you know, sentiment. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And, and you know, we could go with, with sculptors too. That's why I threw in Praxiteles, but. <laughs> right. Well then, I mean, if you, if I was going with the sculptor, I'd want Rodin because. Just you know, say. Yeah. Or, or who, or whoever was sculpting all those old kingdom Egyptian Kings. Cause then I would be portrayed in a way that I've never appeared. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, and this kind of is bringing us closer to, to topic. Um, yeah. Would, would you want to be portrayed in the Amarna period though? Cause I would not. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah, I, I want to be that. spelt and 20 years old and <laughs> right. with a, <laughs> with a right. body that just looked like it would never be. It would never quit. You know, I didn't want to quite say that either, but there's <laughs> really so little to say anymore. Well, so, well, so we should probably, um, you know, ask our listener, uh, if our listener has any suggestions or uh, wants to, uh, you know, pay for a portrait by Annie Leibovitz for us. <laughs> but, uh, but this does lead us to the, to the, uh, to the question of what, what these Egyptians, what did Egyptians look like in general? And what did these particular three Egyptians reconstructed from their DNA and, and beyond actually look like. And uh, I'm going to stop there because I don't want to get into some kind of ethics jag, but. Uh, well, that's the question is, can this entire topic be uh, interrogated without a kind of more serious set of ethical questions and questions asking, you know, 
what is race and should race be the goal of anything? And, you know, because all of these reconstructions ultimately are, they have a value in and of themselves as sort of being, you know, pure research, what these people look like. But in this particular kind of a question or reconstruction, as, as soon as that ink is dry on that illustration or that photograph or whatever, you know, you know it's already going to be taken and interpreted and used to, for this purpose and that purpose, and it's going to be completely um, become a very, you know, fraught polemical set of interpretations um, right. almost immediately. So there's, you know, that's, I think that's not an unimportant aspect of this. That's, that's true. That's absolutely true. Um, but, you know, we can, and, and so there's the political aspect and there's also the cultural aspect and we'll, we'll address that. But should we maybe contextualize things first since we haven't done that and say that- Why, uh, would, we, why, why would we begin at the beginning? Well, no, I like to begin at the beginning. All right. um, so, so there's, there's, they have now done DNA sequencing. They um, meaning our, 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 our usual boffins. The extraordinarily sophisticated scientists whose research we can't really understand. At the Max, um, at the, at the Max Planck Institute. Yes. Um, they, they were able to extract DNA from some mummies from Abu Sir near Cairo. And um, previously it had been difficult to sequence mummy DNA, but now they've been able to do it and they've done it successfully for, for uh, three mummies, um, two, uh, well, New Kingdom and Roman. I'm not sure how many, I think it was two Roman and one New Kingdom, but I could be wrong. Uh, and prob the problem is usually that DNA degrades because of the humidity in the tombs, but now they've been able to do this. Actually, they've taken mitochondrial DNA from 90 mummies, I believe, but they were only successful with three and they were able to get it from teeth and bone and soft tissue, I think protected it. Um, and, and then um, once they were able to do that, uh, more recently, I think that was done in 2017. And now more recently, um, they have done uh, reconstructions, uh, forensic reconstructions based on, among other sources, the DNA evidence from these same three mummies. So that's what we're talking about. Good. That was an excellent recap. Why, mm. thank you. Yeah. And, and I think the main thing in all of these articles is the actual reconstructions of what they look like. The right. verbiage is one thing and everyone just wants to look at the pictures. That's right. Right, right. I'm going to go look at the pictures. I mean, we, we all look at guys. Yeah. 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 Um, so here's, I'll, I'll, I'm just going to jump right in. And, yeah, jump right in because yeah. I... And, and, you know, and this will just sound, I don't know, like a Luddite, but I guess I usually sound like a Luddite, um, which is um, I've always been suspicious of forensic reconstructions. So um, because- Why? Hold it. Why have you always been suspicious? Okay. Because now I understand the principles. I, I understand that they are able to, even before this DNA business, that they're able to take the skull and they're able to, based on- I guess yeah, evidence on the skull, figure out the musculature and how thick it would have right. been. And I do understand all that. However, there are so there, there's so much subjectivity that you are you're there's a it, it's sort of an art versus science thing. You got the science, but there's so much that you can still kind of make up and you sort of 
have to make up. So I went a little bit down a rabbit hole this morning, um, you know, researching before we podcast about um, about the accuracy of uh, forensic reconstructions. And depending on what article you read, you'll hear that they're either really, really accurate or that there is a significant margin of, of error. And one problem that um, I found cited in two separate articles. So obviously that makes it true, right? <laughs> or either that or it makes it a wall, hard to say. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Is that, um, they, that, that reconstructions of all sorts, DNA and other forensic methodologies rely heavily on average data and on sort of sticking to inflexible um, standards of how to do it. So when you're relying on average data, um, you are obviously not, you know, how, you know, what makes an average? There's so many variables that go into making an average that you're really not able to, to I don't know, it, it really just bugs me. Um, so I'll stop. No, that's interesting because I didn't do that deep dive and I've, but I've always also been very uh, skeptical of all reconstructions. And in fact, this came up in class a couple days ago when I was doing uh, the old Assyrian colonies. And there is this great reconstruction of a bunch of Assyrian traders at, at Kanesh. And mm-hmm. I normally don't use reconstructions, but I was so taken by this one, even though it's just as fantastic as any others. And then, so I thought about that a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, so you're saying that there are really, uh, there's no consensus within the within the scientific world itself on the validity of these reconstructions. That's that's what I found. And now we'll probably have a listener or two saying, no, there's absolutely complete consensus and they're absolutely accurate. Uh, but that's that's kind of what I found in my in my down the rabbit hole right. dive. Yeah. Uh, so and and I've always also felt so so I was just uh, teaching, well, there's um, so so we have, and, and this is apropos of the article. Um, we have uh, Ramses II mummy. I've always been enamored of Ramses II because he's so complete and he looks so human. Lifelike. So right. Yeah. And, and, and we also have a lot of statuary of him. And um, so there's, there's, I always transpose one basic statue of him next to his mummy and you can see the resemblance, right? You can see <laughs> that the statue looks like the man. Yeah, and, he, looks like a, he looks like an old Mediterranean guy. He looks like an old Mediterranean guy. Well, yeah, he and, needs a little thing on his head. Right. Right. And, uh, and, and so I wonder about these forensic reconstructions. You know, we have a lot more evidence, art historical evidence, than when we're dealing with mummies, like we have mummy masks. And, and in the Roman period, certainly painted reconstructions of faces. Um, I really would like to know how much those are consulted, because I have the impression that they're not consulted that much in terms of forensic reconstructions. But then again, I don't know anything about this. Wasn't one of the Ramses the second? Was it Ramses the second who just there was some reconstruction and it got a lot of heat for looking way too Anglo and way too Caucasian and yeah, you know, generated some, a lot of skepticism. Somebody, yeah, and I somebody don't like that. Well, that yeah. that also brings us to Queen T. We're uh, already at Queen T, are we? Well, uh, just in terms of of her yeah. of her looks, and, definitely. Um, you know, look. But it's, it's necessary to mention that forensic DNA phenotyping, which is yes. what they did, takes, looks at the DNA and basically reconstructs um, eye color, skin color, and um, something else, and hair color. Hair color, right. right. 
uh, on the basis of of your DNA. Right. And so that's and that's where they came up with these these latest reconstructions. Now, you know, to my mind, the 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 issue of were Egyptians white, were Egyptians black, was a giant red red herring. <laughs> was it red though? <laughs> uh, because they're they're e Egyptians and they're sort of Egyptian colored, and uh, and it's um, right. It's it's our projection of these contemporary terms and concerns back on, uh, and in 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 ancient Egypt, you know, at least in terms of like, paintings, there are very very strict color conventions for how right. you depict. Right. All sorts of different ethnic groups, and they're right. very, very conscious of these things. And gods are usually, I think, sort of a turquoise. Um, so they, you know, they knew how to tell people apart. Right. And you know, but but this forensic DNA phenotyping is is basically, you know, looking at not musculature or skull shape or anything like that. It's just looking at eyes, hairs, eye color, hair color and um and skin color which right. you know, only goes so far in terms of telling you right what what a person looked like right and what they found with all three of these um is light brown skin dark eyes and dark hair in other words the the right. uh mediterranean slash middle eastern um right yeah it's right like and of course Egyptians. Right. And of course, you know, as as has already been said by you guys a number of times, um, these are limited number of examples and it's averaging kinds of things. And so if there's a lot of diversity within the population, which I think we can probably say there was, right. um, just like there's diversity in all populations, then whatever we're looking at is just one slice of a huge pie. Right. And, and they did conclude that, um, that major uh, population and genetic inputs from sub-Saharan Africa right. did not occur until later. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so and how now there's a greater amount of genomic material from Central Africa since over the last 1500 years than prior to that. So, right. 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 Yeah. And I think all, that, all of which kind of tracks with things that we sort of thought beforehand. Right. And, and I think the number, the percentage I read in one of these articles is that modern Egyptians share 8% of, of the genome with Central Africans, right. which is a lot more than ancient Egyptians apparently shared. Right. Um, yeah. And, and ultimately, so we have, there's a couple things that I sort of took away from all this. One is a heightened interest in color in general in the ancient world. And right. that's been building for a long time now in a lot of, according, sort of along a lot of different lines of inquiry. Yeah. Starting with, you know, Roman sculpture and, you know, everything was, everything looks white, but it wasn't, it was garish colors, lots of yellows and blues and reds and all of that. So that's one thing, uh, the interesting color. And, and that's a very good thing because I, you know, I always emphasize to my students where you've got to think polychromatically when you think about ancient societies and you've got to think about the smell, especially mm -hmm. in urban societies and probably how God awful these ancient cities <laughs> smelled. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I think the senses are important and the fact that we can get at them in any small way is a good thing because um, right. it just adds a dimension. Um, so that's all good, but, 
again, the interpretive jumps that you get once you sort of lay these images or put these images on paper and get them, not on paper, but obviously <laughs> once these images go out. Yeah. And, you know, the interpretation takes over and then people's and scholars, you know, interests in their own kinds of agendas with images and what people look like take over. And I, I don't know about that. And then the third thing is what you brought up, uh, Rachel, um, which is, you know, the validity of this kind of thing. Is it, you know, is this even, um, you know, accurate yeah. in any way, shape or form? Right, right. I, I think there's a lot of... So, so one of the things we should point out is that the Egyptians were very Egyptocentric, right? They right. didn't like quote unquote foreigners at all, whether right. they were from the north or from the south. And exactly. uh, yeah, and, and they really saw themselves as separate. And then if we look culturally- Which is actually a very, you know, it's a very ancient, we, we have a good solid base for that interpretation of how Egyptians thought. So we have a good insight into it. Egyptian cognition, yeah, and it's a very, and now we can say that's a very ancient impulse and a very modern impulse. Right. right? All groups think that they're the center of the universe, right. and they all think about their group in a very kind of finite, limited way, not, certainly not at the continental level, which is, yeah. you know, one of the great miscarriages of interpretation in the modern world when people talk about Asians and Europeans and Africans as if these constructs exist on a continental basis and they so don't. Yeah, that's a very good point when you're dealing with Egypt because to the south, you've got that first cataract is really the border of Egypt. And the more you go right. down, the harder it is to cross these cataracts. And then going up, you've got, you know, a desert, the Sinai Desert separating yourself from the northerners. So you're really an, you're an island the way- but, the, this is a this is a cultural for for the Egyptians. It's a cultural concept, and you could you could become an Egyptian. It wasn't a question of your biology, and it wasn't even a question of where you were born. That you could be a you could become a general if you were Nubian. You could right. become right. a vizier if you were I don't know a Levantine. Right, and, and there's um, lots of examples of all of that. Right, and and there's one. You know, unfortunate interlude with, with the Hyksos, where things kind of got out of hand, um, <laughs> with the with the foreigners, and that you know messed yeah. things up a little bit. But well, we should also point out that the Hyksos wanted to be Egyptians. They ruled as if they were Egyptians. They tried too hard. They tried really. Maybe hard. that was yeah. maybe that was their problem. It, yeah. just, it was one toke over the line. <laughs> Something and, I'd never be accused of <laughs> trying too hard. <laughs> but it, but it, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a biological thing. It's a cultural thing, and the cultural yeah. thing is that you accept the Egyptian worldview of, you know, gods and kings and pyramids and all this crazy, ridiculous yeah. stuff. But, but isn't it always a cultural thing? Isn't can't we say that about all of these kinds of constructs? They're all cultural things. Well, but it's not. But they weren't. They weren't racists. Is I guess what I'm right. They were I'm saying they're not. They didn't see. They, they perceived ethnic groups and racial so-called groups, but that didn't, and, and that mattered, but in a political, only in a political sense. They, they were anti-non-Egyptians. Right. But they if were you, open about welcoming people into being Egyptians. Right, exactly. So it's not about, not about biology. Right. For them. Right, well, it couldn't be, they didn't know. I mean, they don't know about biology in the way we know about biology. Right, right. Um, 
and they had all sorts of cultural interactions. Well, actually, cultural interactions with both the South and the North. Yeah, and the, the West, East. and the East, and the, West. And the East, every and direction. The East. <laughs> and they really didn't like anybody. No. Yeah. <laughs> Just like every group. Right. Right. They're so, all. Everybody outside is is kind of a, an uncool barbarian. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so this this is sort of our our societal overlay looking at at uh, race regarding ancient Egyptians because they didn't think in those terms. Is that and and this is another example I think that if we climbed into a time machine or did whatever you have to do to travel through time, yeah, take the appropriate <laughs> capsule or whatever it is that regardless of what we think and what we're able to think, once we landed there and asked a couple of key questions to a wide demographic base, I think we'd probably be very surprised. I think you're probably right. Right. Yeah. The, um, yeah. the terms would be so different. Right. And there'd be, right. And there'd be think. a lot of diversity in opinion. If you asked a, you know, a farmer, and if you asked one of the growing middle class in the middle kingdom on, and if you mm -hmm. asked an elite, you'd probably be surprised. Yeah. I, and if you I asked think you would be. I think you're right. And if you ask somebody in the fourth dynasty versus right. somebody in the pre-Amarna age of internationalism. Right. Uh, much less in the 26th dynasty. Right, exactly. Right. When yes. the whole when the whole place was being run by a non-Egyptian, so to speak. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Group. And um, well, so so it was a multicultural society, but it wasn't but but there was that was unofficial. Officially, it was a monocultural society. Yeah. Right. Um, and as opposed to something like, I don't know, Babylonian society or in, in, in almost any period, really, where you have lots of crazy ethnic groups and city identified groups right. and whatnot. And, what? Right. And that also speaks to the issue of identity. So in Mesopotamia, for a good chunk of Mesopotamian history, identity is, you know, at the level of the city state. Right. Um, though all of our understanding of these identities is usually, usually, because I don't want to get our one listener all jazzed up and, <laughs> right. and give us a big jacuzzi, but usually it, these are all top down kinds of things based on, you know, elite perspectives. Yeah, sure. But but if you look at um, just the evidence of personal names, right, right, in every period, in uh, almost every period, and almost every place in Mesopotamia, they've got a whole variety of names, and after a generation or two or three or four, they're naming, you know, Gutian folks right. are naming their kids with good Assyrian names or mm -hmm. right, what have you, and everybody's so it, it really is a kind of multicultural society, and certainly right. in Assyria in, in the, the Neo-Assyrian period, where there is a very clear established <clears throat> official culture of Assyrian-ness, um, right, right below that, it's a, it's a free-for-all. It is. So it's an ethnic free-for-all. Right, and it's, you know, once you start, you know, once you start re deportations and resettlements and those people gain traction and gain the ability to, you know, assimilate, then it, it, the free-for-all gets even more free-for-all. And, and then there's, you know, empires like Mitanni, which mm -hmm. are completely composite yeah. um, from the, from the get-go. This is right. a very, you know, multicultural society with elements 
linguistic elements from you know all over the place yeah yeah um, yeah um yeah i think that's 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 why i personally have a hard time teaching the mitanni i also only have one semester to do everything so that's another problem with teaching the mitanni but uh but, but how, many, so how many times a semester do you get, get to say washukani not enough maybe not enough. once it's yeah. never it's never yeah. enough really um <laughs> But, but my, my larger point is that they're hard to teach because, they're, <laughs> because they're, you, know, you can define, more or less you can define what Egypt is, what, what Egyptians are, what the culture is all about. It's much harder to do that with, with Hurrians and with Mitanni. Right. Um, and, now, and now we can look at these three reconstructions and uh, offer them up as this is what, uh, this is what a, an, uh, an Egyptian looks like. Right, but but this, nobody, nobody ever wants to know. Well, what did a Matanian look like? Oh, I, I want like to know. Well, yeah. I would like <laughs> to know. In terms of popular, like to know. and I, and I want to know what their hairstyles look like because that's another thing that when we do have you know artistic renditions of of different peoples, you know, hairstyles are always a key element along Absolutely. with you know, dress. But the hairstyles: do they have mustaches? Do they have beards? Long beards? Short beards? No beards? Long hair, short hair, you know, color hair, and there that was, was another thing about T, about uh, Queen T is her hair color that we get. Right, that's right. a pretty clear thing because her mummy had a lot, a lot of, a lot of hair. Right, right, and that's one of the, the so the article about Queen T pointed out that that she became I never say this word right is it a, a meme an um, internet meme? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, after the parade of mummies when they were moving the mummies last spring to the new museum, um, and there was a big live and televised event, um, everybody was apparently talking about her long flowing hair and right. it became a meme. And I had, I had seen the parade of mummies, I kind of missed the meme. Uh, and um, I mean, that's, I forget where I was going with this, but that's that's one of the cool things about mummies that you do actually have hair often right. and, and uh, you know exactly what they look like. Um, but but the idea of women's hair in Egypt and this article I read we read went off on all the different hair products that have been found in tombs that right. relate to women's grooming almond oil castor oil scented oils um, uh, what else oh oh curling irons um, curling tongs I should say um, which sounds like it might do a lot of damage what about hair. jojoba or is that hohoba is it hohoba I, I can never figure out how to pronounce that. Hohoba. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same stuff that's in any modern woman's shampoo. Or uh, men's. Or, I think shampoo is, you know. Okay. Well, is shampoo and conditioner? I mean, <laughs> is it an all-in-one? Yeah. Those aren't as good. Or is it just like you, you put bear grease or something on afterwards? <laughs> well, in, in any case, I guess the point is that... Um, we're always concerned about hair in our society, and so were they. Right. Mm. How's that well, generalization? So clearly, Ramses II wasn't so concerned in the later part of his life. Right. 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 Because, <laughs> like a good Mediterranean man, he was bald. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had tufts on the sides. Right. He had tufts on the side. Yeah. That's and I think what... that's what makes his mummy so so kind of appealing. He looks like a regular older guy. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. He could be taking your ticket on the. On the Cairo subway, or or your accountant, something. Yeah. Um, I'm just uh, I'm just fascinated that nobody wants to know what. Well, I guess we know what Mesopotamians look like, um, Assyrians and Babylonians, at least. Well, we know what the 
royalty look like. Right. Yeah, well, and we know what all of the, the, the deportees and, and things who are being well, impaled on stakes. Um, right. But yeah, like. yeah, that's true. That's true. But we don't have we don't have as many physical body we don't have mummies basically so so we we so as a modern scientific society we don't have as much material to work with from Mesopotamians and so there's not that kind of well a few more years they'll be able to scrape the DNA out of some Assyrian king's teeth right and tell us what what color his his eyes were or at least out of the tombs of Ur skeletons. Um, yeah. Um, does anybody want to make a comment about Queen T? I thought she was, uh, you know, rather attractive. Oh yeah. So you know, it's a good look. Absolutely. Um, and there's also a famous statue of Queen T, which we should point out. And the mummy looks. The features of the mummy do look like the features on on the statue. So when you're reconstructing Queen T, you got lots of evidence to to go on. Yeah. But the, the interesting thing, which actually never occurred to me, as many things have not occurred to me, is that if, if the mummies match the, the art, that means that the artists viewed the, the individuals during their lifetime. Well, during their lifetime or, or right at the moment of death, like when, when they're preparing, you know, before they started taking all the fluids out. <laughs> I guess, but, but if you're... If you're making a sculpture, I don't know, oh. of, of some Egyptian king, you're, you're not working on the basis of either a description or, or DNA. Right. So, sorry, I thought you were talking about mummy masks for a minute because I wasn't paying attention. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's the story of my life. Wow. What a, what a completely honest <laughs> interlude. We're, we're nothing if not honest on this. If I can't be honest time. in a podcast, when can I be? That's true. Um, um, but but okay, well, you're talking right. about actual uh, sculptures. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually look like these. Like the, the the sculpture looks like the mummy. So the artist must have seen the the individual during their lifetime. How was that organized? I, I mean, there's no reason to think they weren't. You know, royal artists weren't at work collecting sketches and having them available throughout. Mm -hmm, yes. You know, once they realized, yeah, this person is going to reach maturity and they're going to rule. So we better have a couple of sketches on file. That's, yeah. Um, and, and that kind of brings us back to, Peter, what you were saying at the beginning. Um, you know, do you want to have a nice stylized old kingdom, perfect health, perf perfect yes. Um, Right, right. And that's what they were doing in the old kingdom. And actually, so when, when I was reading one of these articles, the, the mummy reconstruction article, they said they had to choose an age to reconstruct them. They had to choose age 25 because, you know, they want a youthful look for these they could have chosen age 40 i suppose it would have been a whole different reconstruction right um, they wouldn't have had teeth <laughs> or the teeth would have been short and stubby <laughs> right. right and and so they chose 25 and that's kind of like what old kingdom artists are doing they're doing this idealized yeah. portrait so yeah, so we're we're mm -hmm. the the circle is unbroken correct or, or something correct. Yeah, even even though I don't love this whole, you know, too much subjectivity to, to make it into a real resemblance, I'm not bothered by it in the old kingdom. You know? So you wouldn't want to see some kind of like 13th dynasty actual depiction <laughs> you are there of, uh, of how they really looked in their dotage. Can I tell you one of my favorite royal portraits from the middle kingdom is um, Senwasret III, mm -hmm. uh, who has this 
sort of care, you know, all the all the troubles of his empire show in the lines of his face and his careworn face. And you know what the one I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's always just fascinating because this is a real person that you're looking at. And he had right. real problems. He had terrible rebellions in the South and he was fighting wars in the North. And he's just, you know, it's 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 tough to be king. <laughs> when the hippos bellow, yeah. right. it, it weighs on the shoulders of the king. That is right. <laughs> that's that's true. And but uh, nobody really wants to end up looking like uh, I don't know. No one wants to end up looking like Akhenaten. That's for sure. Yeah, I was. Gonna, yeah. Even though many people do end up looking like Akhenaten. Well, right. I mean, no one wants to be depicted. I certainly wouldn't want to be depicted in, in you know, full, <laughs> full, <laughs> full Batman yeah. style, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, don't don't wear the kilt thing. It's it's not a flattering look. No, it's not a flattering look. Yeah. You yeah. really have to suck it in. On the other hand, his wife Nefertiti. She her her portrait her is so famous because she's considered so beautiful by Western standards, and yes. yet she has the elongated Amarna neck and all of all of that. So the big yeah. earlobes. I always worry when the ear when the ears get big. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's when that's when the photographs stop. <laughs> <laughs> all right, re- remind us. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, but the, the the sort of juxtaposition or the tension between the realistic portrayals and the stylized portrayals in Egyptian art, as well as in forensic reconstruction. That's actually pretty fascinating when you think about it, because some of my other favorite Egyptian statuary are the other, well, Old Kingdom portraits, the rare few that look look like real people, like Hemiyun, who is nice and heavy, mm-hmm. and, um, and um, Ankaf, where you can, I guess these are both fourth dynasty, where you can you know see exactly what he looks like and he's not stylized well, which don't you like um well i it's not that i don't like them but you know you look at kafre and yeah he's got <laughs> he's just kind of staring at you and menkare they're just kind of staring at you they're very bland in their features because they're they're stylized they're perfect so i have no problem with perfection it's just less interesting than right. lines of worry and stuff so the warts and all school. yeah yeah exactly exactly None of them had warts, though, or are depicted with warts. Right, that's also very true. Okay, and I know I'm talking too much, but this brings me to yet another <laughs> bone to pick with the forensic reconstructions. Okay, yeah. you're, okay, you're going with the DNA evidence for the colors of the eyes and the hair and so on, the skin. Um, and uh, you're going with the musculature, I assume, for the, the, the planes of the face. You don't know if they had acne scars. You don't know if their hairline was receding. Um, you don't know if they had three double chins or just two, um, you know, all this... <laughs> right? uh, three double chins that, yeah. Yeah. You know, you just really don't have Wouldn't three double chins be six. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and you don't know, you know, you don't know the shape of the eyes. You don't know if your eyelids are droopy or if you're, you have this sort of intense beady eyes stare, you know, you're never going to get this stuff. No. And that can be, um, you know, I, I always think of this also in, in um, like just modern forensic reconstructions, you know, like CSI type shows 
you know, you can, you can portray it one way and you'll never be able to catch the criminal because you'll never be able to identify the victim properly because they don't really look like they're forensic. I'm, I'm sure there have been studies done of uh, art, artists' renditions of criminals and then what the criminals right. actually look like. Right, and, right. And I'm, I'm sure there are publications out the wazoo on that in sort of forensic journals. I need to do another down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, just watch, uh, just watch some episodes of CSI. All 17 seasons or whatever. Something like that. Yeah. Because uh, that's basically what all this, what all this archaeology stuff is now. It's all, it's all DNA and tricorders and linear accelerators and whatnot. Right. And, right. And, and the good old fashioned, just finding some stuff and making up a story. That's. Well, we're still making up the stories. I don't think right. we have to worry about that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're good at that anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, so do, do we want to say anything else about these uh, about these three individuals or Queen Queen T? Oh, do we did are we going to talk about the mummified cats? Let's talk about the mummified cats. Oh, got so close to getting out of here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk about them really really quickly. Though. Okay. What do you want to say about them? Well, first of all, I just want to say that they're mummifying all these animals, and um, <clears throat> including I learned from this article, lion cubs occasionally, ibises. Um, calves, birds of prey. By the millions. By, yeah. the, by the millions, yes. But obviously cats, you know, yeah. a lot of cats. Um, and, you know, I was, as always, I was thinking, are they pets? And um, some of them might have been pets, but others of them are, are there for other reasons. <laughs> oh, tantalizing. <laughs> I thought I'd let one of you say what, what they might be there for besides just pets. Well, it can't all be pets because no one had that many pet crocodiles. <laughs> it's like prehistoric Adam's family. Right. <laughs> um, votive offerings, sacred animals. Yeah, votive offerings and sacred animals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the, and I guess the big takeaway was that there that the uh, that the linens that were used for mummification were also polychromatic. And, exactly. And that there was you know that they that the colors helped highlight the styles of of weaving and uh, you know. Right, 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 right. Because the the linen wrappings, linen made from flax, by the way. Right. <laughs> just to continue with that theme. Um, the linen wrappings um, were painted um, both with decorative bands and also like the eyes and the, the beaks, if it's a bird, were all emphasized with, with painting. Right. So, so yeah, so this goes to your point earlier, JP, about uh, uh, how polychromatic the ancient world really was. It's not right, just right. the sculptures that were multicolored. It's, 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 it's the actual, right, it's the actual mummies themselves. And that the color had, you know, it was all... It was all woven into a greater whole. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Right, but uh, but uh, that's all that's all fine. But in the Egyptian context, they're they're basically scarfing up the natural world, <laughs> mummifying it, dyeing it, painting it, and then disposing of all of this wealth right. as a means of demonstrating their own um, you know wealth and power and uh, you know disposable income. Right, as opposed to, you know, some sort of, and it was probably something about you know, controlling the natural world, controlling chaos, and uh, formulating a kind of a 
a way of dealing with all of that that natural world chaos. Mm. In other words, if you can catch a crocodile, kill it, <laughs> kill it, and stuff mummify it. it you've, you've controlled yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So it's no different than than shooting a lion and stuffing it and putting it in your in your rumpus room. Right. Right. Which is the same as the Assyrian royal lion hunts, where you're, right. yeah. Right. I mean, it's a little different because we understand the environmental and ecological degradation that that encompasses, and they didn't necessarily, and they weren't facing that kind of an issue. Right. But um, so I, I think there is a little bit of a difference. In well, fact, a huge difference. Yeah. But, um, but that gets into modern day ethics and polemics that I know we eschew. We eschew those, but it's also, I mean, very recently within the last, I don't know, 50, less than 50 years, we've begun to be aware of that a hundred years ago when safaris were, you know, a going concern and Westerners were going to shoot lions on a much more regular basis, let's say. Um, but there were extinctions already of certain animals a hundred years ago and they knew that and they recognized that and they just didn't give a shit. Okay. Oh, can I say yeah. that on a podcast? No. <laughs> yeah, towards the end, it's probably okay because everybody will have hung up by now. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, they, they, they uh, knew certain kinds of springbok were really, really hard to find anymore. Right. And they just, assiduously hunted the last ones to extinction. Right. So I, I, I give the Victorians no credit. They're, okay. they're dead as dodos. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. yeah. Okay, now that's that's a very fair point. I haven't really considered extinctions <laughs> going right. on. But the, for, I mean, some of the, in, the impulses were, were the same. They're afraid of the natural world. You challenge yourself mm -hmm. by going out in the, in the natural oh, world. Oh, I think. And fighting. I think we're, no, no, no. I, but it's the but the results are are very different. Um, yeah, so. but I don't think there was a great fear of the natural world in these colonial expeditions that used rifles. I think they, I I I think they're very different things at work. Right. I, I, I think, think they, they wanted. I think the issue of control over the natural world might be the same impulse. Yeah. But I think the issue of fear was probably a little bit different. Well, it's, a, it's an artificial constructed fear <laughs> um, as, as a way of, of challenging yourself and, and constructing your own masculinity. Before we get- that's, I think that was the first time we've used the word masculinity. Possibly, possibly. Before we get too far afield, let's bring it back to, to Near Eastern imagery of, you know, the lion is the great strong beast and gods that are identified with lions and so on. So we have, there is a healthy respect for the strength of the natural world. Yeah. Um, right. And look in, in a place like uh, <laughs> the ancient Near East, you actually could get eaten by a crocodile if you weren't careful. Right. It can um, happen in Florida too, today. For example. <laughs> well, I think those would be alligators, but yeah. <laughs> if you're eaten by that's, a crocodile in Florida, we have a real problem. I, all right. <laughs> that's, a small, that's a small issue. They're basically prehistoric creatures with a set of jaws that, you know. Uh, right. That live that, amongst that's what us. I'm getting at, yes. Uh, right. And, um, you know, the wild boar is is a genuine um a genuine threat all over the place because those yeah, things are this day. yeah yeah um downtown haifa <laughs> just right walking down the street yeah and... well coyotes throughout north america now right right, right. 
So. We, I saw a coyote uh, uh, across the street coming out of my neighbor's yard two years ago. Um, so, you know, the dingo could eat your baby. <laughs> and, and that would be that would be bad. Right. Uh, uh, so shall we try to bring this back around to mummy reconstruction? <laughs> well, I think that, you know, the most important thing about mummy reconstruction really is that it, it opens up all of these cans of worms. Mm -hmm. um, because of its, uh, because of because of what it does, because it sort of you know puts these ancient bodies in amber and allows us to get a glimpse of them. And once once we have that glimpse, uh, you know, as we've said before, interpretation gets really crazy and wild and all over the place and has a lot of different angles to it. Well, it's good and it's bad in that you, you can't just you can't just say with impunity that. The Egyptians were this or that yeah. anymore. Yeah. You can't you, you can't say that the you know the the they were Celts or that the the Mesopotamians were um, I don't know space aliens or or something because now there's actual there, there's actual um, scientific evidence that tells you what they were and sort of what they kind of looked like right um, right. But the whole biological revolution, the DNA revolution in archaeology is, you know, maybe this is something to, to talk about another time. Uh, uh, we'll devote a whole episode. <laughs> It'll be DNA week. Um, it's, it's a question of tiny, 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 tiny samples thus far. Right. And right. Big extrapolations that, that uh, scientists tend to make on the basis of not terribly much data. Um, but well, yeah, well, so, sorry. Um, my, 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 my final thought is, is um, so when they were talking about the forensic DNA phenotyping, um, they were also pointing out that all humans share most of the same DNA. So they're actually only going for the single nucleotide poly morphism <laughs> uh, in other words like apparently a snippet of DNA that does show these couple of differences in eye color and so on um, so the the final thought I'm going for is we're all really alike right that that uh, the differences are so minor between between all the all the various differences that make us human but we're more alike than we are different it's, it's almost uplifting <laughs> I was going for uplifting that's good well, I think we should close with uplifting. Let's yeah. do that. Well, I think we can say that this episode has answered more questions than were actually asked. So, as always, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, educator in residence at the Savannah Music Festival, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Biograph Pictures. Their new smash hit, Manhattan Merry-Go-Round, opens November 26th. To get in touch, leave us a comment send us an email at this week in the ancient near east it's all one word at gmail.com or send us a postcard at p.o box 1177 boston mass 02134